What a great start to our worship this morning. Good to see you. It's always a pleasure to be able to open God's Word with you, as Bill mentioned. Pastor Chad is taking some well-deserved time off, and that's not an easy thing to get him to do. So uh, you should encourage him that, uh, that that's a good thing for him to do because he needs to get refueled and rested up as well. And, and I know I saw Faith earlier, so I'm sure he's here somewhere, but I've not seen him this morning. But we get to keep going in our study of the book of Genesis. The good news is he told me I get to preach on Sunday. The bad news is he said it's about Sodom and Gomorrah. But we're going to make the best of it, aren't we? No, it's been a great study. And uh, we've been walking through life these last many weeks with a man named Abraham, a man that we know God had big plans for. Big, big plans. And what we've seen over and over again as we've read the Scripture is that God didn't choose Abraham because of his perfection. He chose Abraham because of his devotion and because of his faithfulness to the Lord. We've seen Abraham time and time again stumble, sometimes fall, make really bad choices, make really bad decisions. But through it all, Abraham has just kept coming back to God. And we can see in the way that he lived and the things that he did and the things that he prioritized that his greatest desire was to walk the pathway that God had laid out for him. And so with each stumble and with each fall... We've seen Abraham get a little closer to God, rely a little more on the Lord, and certainly he is learning to do that in every situation and every circumstance. You may remember, if you're here last week or if you joined us online in chapter 18, uh, God shared with Abraham his plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you're on the list that God shares his plans with you, that's a pretty good sign in itself, isn't it? You're in a pretty good spot if God's sharing his plans. And he shared that with Abraham. And then we remember that through intercessory prayer, Abraham pleaded with God. He negotiated with God to some degree to alter that plan at least enough that his reckless nephew Lot could be saved. And this morning, Lot's really the focus of our passage. Lot lived a life that was completely in contrast to Abraham. Lot chose his own pathway. Lot went his own way. He followed his own desires. And as we will see, it took him further and further from the Lord. So I'm going to invite you to read along with me. Genesis 19. We're going to cover almost all of the chapter this morning. But we're going to read the first eight verses. And would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Here now, my lords, please turn in to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and be on your way. And they said, No, but we'll spend the night in the open square. But Lot insisted strongly. So they turned in to him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. And now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, and they said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, please, my brethren, do not do so so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. 
Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since the reason that they came is, under the, is to be under the shadow of my roof. You may be seated. Well, Sodom and Gomorrah are, it's a pretty commonly known story. Sodom and Gomorrah have really become synonymous with cities, both here in the States, around the world, that are characterized by being dark places, by, by being known for sinful behavior. But while there's many dark places in this world, and many places that are sinful and even out of control, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns really stand alone about the level of the wickedness that took place in, in those cities. So let's talk first about the wickedness of Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah were the two primary cities on the plains of the Jordan River in southern Canaan. And along with the surrounding towns of Admah, Zeboin, and Zoar, they made up a metroplex of people uh, th that enjoyed living on, on what was perhaps the most beautiful and the richest piece of property that the world has ever known. We're going to read from chapter 13 in a minute, but when Lot saw this piece of property, he compared it to the Garden of Eden. And we know that the Garden of Eden was beauty like no other. And as you would expect, beautiful places draw people, don't they? And so people flocked to this place. It became a center of commerce and of wealth. But despite all that it had going for it, over time it also became one of the darkest places in the world. A place of abhorrent, unnatural, sinful behavior. Jude 1.7 confirms that, just as we read just a moment ago from chapter 19, that Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities had given themselves up to sexual immorality and to unthinkable and unnatural sinful acts. But it wasn't just sexual immorality that made this place so dark and so sinful. Ezekiel 16 tells us that the cities were really a cauldron of every kind of sin, every kind of immoral act that a man can do. Ezekiel writes, this was the iniquity of Sodom. She had pride. She had fullness of food and abundance of idleness. Neither did she do anything to help or strengthen the poor and the needy. And they were a haughty people and committed abominations before God. It was the famous writer Dostoevsky who came to know Christ as a child and really was an evangelist throughout his life who said, without God in the world, all things are permissible. Well, in Sodom and in Gomorrah as well, things had not just become permissible, that they were acceptable. In fact, maybe they were expected. There were absolutely no limits, no boundaries to what people could and would do. Now, I hope you know that our God is a God of order. You know, part of what we've learned as we've read through Genesis is how he has ordered things for our good and for the good of our world. But when God is pushed out of a, of a culture, it quickly becomes a very chaotic and a very dangerous place. And Lot seemed to recognize this. <clears throat> In verse 4, we read that, this epidemic of sin, it wasn't like there were just some bad neighborhoods or there were just certain people that were, uh, that were infected by this sinful behavior. It says it was every single person in every quarter of the cities. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? I mean, you know, we're out amongst evil people a lot of times, but, but we know there are also people that are trying to do the right things, and there's other believers that are out there doing good. But this was a place 
where none of that was going on. In fact, the angels were sent to find ten righteous men. But they could only find one. And as we're going to see in a moment, even his behavior was pretty suspect, wasn't it? Lot recognized that this was no place for strangers. Lot recognized this was really no place for anybody to wander into. And so when he spots God's angels, hard to tell whether he recognizes them as angels or not, but he quickly tries to get them off, to the, off the street and into his house. His plan was to feed them a fast food meal, including unleavened bread, and then he immediately tells them, hey, why don't you get to bed early because you need to get out of here early. First thing in the morning, you need to be on your way and get out of this town. Doesn't it make you wonder why anyone would choose to live in a place that they were obviously so ashamed of? But Lot did. Now, if there's anything we know about angels, it's that these guys can take care of themselves. They really don't need to be afraid of anybody. They can really take care of just about anybody that comes their way. And so Lot makes this first request, and the angel said, no, 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 we're good. We'll just hang out in the city square until morning, and then we'll do what we came here to do. But verse 3 says that Lot insisted strongly that they get themselves inside. He may have even laid hands on the angels and, and, and forced them almost to come into his house because he was so fearful of the wickedness that he knew would surround them. Now recently, we've all seen how ugly lawlessness can be right here in our own cities and country, haven't we? It can get out of control and out of, out of hand pretty quick. But even what we've seen, compared to the wickedness of Sodom, it doesn't compare. The wickedness of Sodom was so far beyond this. Sodom was indeed a dark place. But while Sodom is the setting for this passage of Scripture, it's really not the subject of this passage of Scripture, I don't believe. The subject is still Lot. So next, next let's talk about Lot's drift. One thing that I really enjoy, I wish I could do it a lot more often, is to swim in the ocean. I really love to be out in the waves and, and uh, enjoy the beach too. But if, if I'm there, I want to be in the water. I love to ride the waves. I, I, I'm a good swimmer. But on just a few occasions, when I've had that opportunity, I've gotten caught in a little bit of an undertow or a riptide. And if you've ever been caught in that, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It, it quickly goes from having a great time to this isn't fun at all. And the scary thing about these riptides is that they tend to carry you much further before you even realize that you're in one. But suddenly... It goes from having a wonderful time to being in dangerous waters. And it often takes everything you got, physically, mentally, emotionally even, to keep your wits about you to be able to swim back to a safe place. It's not an easy thing to do. You know, that same kind of danger is just as real for believers when we get caught in something that causes us to drift away from our faith and from the pathway that God has for us. If we don't constantly stay focused and anchored on our relationship with God, we can suddenly find that we've drifted into dangerous waters. And I think that's exactly what we see as we read this story of Lot. Genesis tells us that his progression to Sodom wasn't immediate. He didn't just wake up one morning and say, you know, I think I'll move to the most dangerous place in the world. No, it was a gradual drift. 
I want you to turn back to Genesis 13. We covered this just a few weeks ago. Genesis 13, Abraham knew that he and Lot needed to go their separate ways. And he gave Lot first choice as far as, hey, where do you want? You go where you want, I'll go a different direction than that. Look at verse 10. Alluded to this just a moment ago, but Lot said, Lot looked around and he saw the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan, and he set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain, and he pitched his tents near Sodom. So often, as it is with Lot, our drift begins when we follow our eyes instead of following our faith and our heart that we know God should own. There's no indication here that Lot prayed about his decision. He could have gone to Abraham as a, as a wiser family member and a wiser believer and said, well, where should I go? Where would you have me to go? Where would be the best place for me to do what God has called me to do? But none of that seems to have happened. Lot just saw what was appealing, and he began to drift toward it. And if you and I aren't careful, the same thing can happen to us. Now turn to Genesis 14. Genesis 14, verses 11 and 12. It says, The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went their way. They also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Over a dozen years has passed here. And Lot has now drifted from having a trailer park in the suburbs to living downtown. He's in the middle of the action. More importantly, he's in the middle of all the darkness that we just talked about that was going on in Sodom. And so now as we get to chapter 19, where's Lot? Well, it says he's living at the city gates. He's got himself a piece of prime property. He's uptown now. He's living in a nice house and a position of importance. Lot has acquired worldly authority, but it's come at the cost of living where no believer should even want to go or choose to be. And as he's drifted physically, we can see in the things that he does that he's drifted uh, spiritually as well. I mean, really, who in their right minds is going to offer up their daughters as sexual slaves to satisfy a crowd's wicked desires? It's really beyond what you can even imagine or think would be possible. If this were the only record we had of Lot, what would we assume? We would assume he was just another citizen of Sodom, wouldn't we? He doesn't do anything that would make us believe that he is a believer or that he knows the Lord. But 2 Peter 2.7 confirms that indeed, at least at one time, Lot was a righteous man. He was a man of faith. He was a man who at least one point in his life feared God so what happened how do you get from that point A to that point B even in the course of a number of years how would a righteous man make the choices that Lot made and find themselves blending in to this pit of absolute wickedness well the answer then is still the answer today and it's often drift it happens slowly it happens gradually, but it still happens. He drifted away from God, and he drifted more and more into the ways of this world. 
It's as if, as if Lot decided to take a hot air balloon one day, hot air balloon ride. The worldly winds began to swirl, and all of a sudden he found that he was crossing over into enemy territory. He floated a little bit further, and then he found that that balloon landed in Sodom. And then over time, he just began to blend in until one day Lot looked more like a man from Sodom than a man of God. Have you ever ridden on that balloon? I have. I'm sure most of you have as well. Because oftentimes our eyes deceive us and we start down a road that looks so harmless and looks so nice only to find it's in the opposite direction of where God would have us to go. And the truth is what we're call, our calling from God is to be exactly the opposite. Not to blend in, but to be set apart. Psalms 4.3 says, The Lord has set apart for him, himself those who are godly. 1 Peter 2.9 says, We're a chosen generation. We're his special people called out of the darkness, out of the wickedness, that we might walk with him in that wonderful light. For a time, Lot gained some earthly treasures. He gained esteem. He no doubt gained some, some stuff. But in the blink of an eye, he was about to lose it all. All that he gained and much, much more. First, it appears to me that Lot lost all of his possessions, which were probably pretty significant. He probably had a lot of stuff. We all know that you can't take it with you. We all know that you never see a U-Haul being pulled by a hearse. Well, as far as I can tell, if you look at verses 14 through 16 of chapter 19, when the angel said, Lot, you need to run for your life, there were no suitcases involved. No time to pack trunks. No time to go back for any valuables. Nothing. Just go. Verse 16 says that Lot lingered. No doubt really hesitant to leave all of his stuff behind. But it says that the angels physically pulled him out of Sodom and pulled him to safety and a saved life. He lost his possessions. He also lost his witness. If he ever had one to begin with, it's really hard to tell. In verses 5 through 9, Lot went out and tried to reason with the wicked crowd. But their response was to hurl insults and threats back at him. They called him an outsider. They, they, they were offended that he would have the nerve to judge them and their obscene behaviors and not give him what they wanted, which was the angels, who finally come out and render the whole crowd blind and yank him back inside to safety. In verse 14, after the angels told Lot to go get his sons-in-law to save them from the wrath of God that was on its way, it says, Lot went out. He spoke to his sons-in-law, who were betrothed to his daughters, and said, Get up. You've got to get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. Our witness is based on the spiritual equity that we have with the people all around us. That includes the people that we know and that we know really well, but it also includes the people that we don't know at all, but that are watching us day after day. If others don't see you any different than themselves, then you're, excuse me, you're going to be just like Lot. Our message of faith will be rejected and it will be mocked because there's no fruit. 
There's nothing that sets us apart. Lot's witness was so weak that even the men that were betrothed to his own daughters either wouldn't or couldn't take him seriously. And so they died along with everyone else in Sodom. Lot lost his possessions. He lost his witness. But finally, and maybe the most costly of all, he lost his family. We already talked about him offering his daughters in verse 8. It's one of the most disturbing passages anywhere in the Bible as far as I know. Ultimately, his daughters would escape Sodom with their dad. But as we'll learn next week, their sense of morality was so messed up by what they'd been exposed to in Sodom and by the lack of any spiritual leadership in their own home that the consequences of their sin would have, have implications for generations and generations and generations to come. And then there's Lot's wife. She also got out of town. She escaped alive. But then suddenly she became a casualty of God's judgment as well. In verse 17, the angels told Lot and his family to run away and not look back. But in verse 26, Lot's wife couldn't help herself. And she became a pillar of salt. Now the Bible doesn't tell us really anything about Lot's wife other than what we read here. But I believe that she was probably a sodomite. She was from this place and she was not a believer at all. I think Lot probably married an unbeliever. Another sign that he had drifted further into the culture. And that his witness over however many years they were together was so weak And so pitiful that even in this crucial time, she had no knowledge and no fear of the Lord. And so what she knew was to look back, exactly what the angels told her not to do. For us and for Lot, drifting often seems so harmless. But more often than not, the cost is greater than we can even imagine. Lot's Uh, drift cost him everything so we've talked about the wickedness of Sodom we've talked about Lot's drift the story ends with God's judgment in verses 20 or 19 through 23 Lot and his daughters take refuge in Zoar and in 24 verse 24 the judgment begins it says then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens He overthrew those cities, all the plains, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. It's a picture of total destruction and total devastation. It was in March of 2003 that then-President George W. Bush addressed the nation to share that a military campaign titled Shock and Awe had begun against Iraq and the city of Baghdad. The attack began with 320 Tomahawk cruise missiles fired from ships in the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea. Those missiles were immediately followed by dozens, perhaps hundreds, of individual missions flown by F-14 and F-18 Hornet jets, strategically dropping thousands of bombs, some weighing up to 1,000 pounds apiece, on strategic targets. The attack was to completely disable and destroy the Iraqi military And as you'll remember, the war ended almost before it began. You know, I I read that this week, and 
I really can't imagine what it would be like to be in a town that was being attacked to that degree. I'm not sure I could uh, uh, believe what, what it'd be like to be in any town that was being attacked, but, but this would have just been, I mean, it would have been shock and awe, wouldn't it? But this was nothing compared to what happened on the plains of Canaan when God's wrath was poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah and those surrounding cities. What had been the most beautiful place anywhere on this earth was completely destroyed, and today it remains perhaps the most desolate spot on the earth. Now, some have suggested that the cities were probably destroyed by some kind of a natural disaster. Well, maybe it was a volcano. Well, there aren't any volcanoes in that part of the world. Maybe it was an earthquake. Well, there's no record of earthquakes. But what remains today really confirms that what happened when God poured out his wrath was exactly what we read in Scripture happened when God poured out his wrath. Today, all that remains are pillars of ash where buildings and homes once stood. In the picture there on the screen, you can see that there are still the remnants of of doorways, of arches from the buildings and the homes that were there that were suddenly torched by fire and brimstone that God rained down. Brimstone's not a word we use very often, but it's another word for pure sulfur. And those pillars of ash, in those pillars of ash, even today you can still find pellets, projectiles, little balls. Guess what they're made out of? The purest sulfur that can be found anywhere on this earth. Nothing grows there now. There's no source of fresh water at all. And if you want any proof of how real God's wrath and God's judgment are, really all you need to do is look at the place where Sodom and Gomorrah once stood. Now, is it important to know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, of course it's important. It's in our Bible. It's there for a purpose. We need to know. But I think what's more important is that we recognize that throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, the example of Sodom and Gomorrah is really a picture of how God will someday judge the entire earth, how he will judge all of mankind. It's a snapshot of what his final judgment will be like. 2 Peter 2.6 says, "...in turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes..." condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly lives. In Mark 6, Jesus was sending out his guys to to preach the message of repentance and and to preach his gospel. And verse 7 says uh, that he knew, or or the verses there in Mark 6 say that he knew some would reject him. Some would basically boot them aside. But he said, assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for those that reject me as Lord and Savior. That's a powerful word. But that's what's coming. That judgment is coming. But the good news is that a pass has been provided. A way to avoid that devastation is available to each and every one of us And his name is Jesus. You see, when we accept his gift of forgiveness, his gift of salvation, we gain so much, don't we? We we gain that loving relationship. We gain that forgiveness. Our life is better. Our relationships are better. Everything's better in our life. But don't ever forget and don't ever discount 
that perhaps the best thing of all is that we don't have to face this judgment. We've been given the ultimate get-out-of-jail card free, but it only comes when we surrender our heart and our life to the Lord Jesus Christ. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a lot there. A lot of information. We see that Sodom was indeed wicked. More wicked than any place we've ever seen or heard of before. We know that just like us, Lot was subject to drifting, and indeed he did drift. And I think we see that if we're going to believe anything from the Bible, we better believe that God's judgment is indeed real. But what does it mean for us today? What, what out of this passage should we really grasp onto and take home with us? Well, let me ask you a few questions as we close. First, if you're honest with yourself, how serious do you really take God's judgment? Do you really believe that he's going to judge the world like Sodom and Gomorrah were judged? And that's for so many people, people you know, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, they are going to find the same fate as Lot's sons-in-laws and by those crowds of sinful people who never came to know the Lord you see the truth is the way you view God's judgment changes everything about the way you live for God it changes everything about how you see the people around you and what links you're willing to do to go to to save them from this judgment just like the angels ultimately yanked Lot away from it. It changes how you live. It changes the way you love others. It changes the way you serve. So ask yourself this morning, how serious am I really taking God's judgment? Second question is, what path are you on? The people of Sodom lived as if there were no God at all, and we see that they all perished. Lot knew God But he drifted so far away that you couldn't even tell that he knew God. And then we go back to Abraham. And Abraham, despite his stumbles and despite his falls, he just kept coming back to God. He just kept trying to cling tighter and stay closer and follow closer. Which path are you on? Are some things, have some things caught your eye and you're beginning to drift? Or are you getting up every day with that determination to start the day in God's word, to to be in prayer for the people around you and, and, and for your own witness throughout the day? Drift is dangerous. Drift will cost you much. Are you on the right path today? Or have you began to drift through this world? You know, the great news this morning is that whatever you've done, wherever you are, Even wherever you stand with the Lord, there's always a road back. The road back begins with Jesus. If you're a believer and you're here today and you know you've you've strayed away, he's willing with open arms to take you back, to forgive you, to start you on a path again. If you've never accepted the Lord as, as your own, those same open arms are waiting for you. It's not like he's going to consider whether he should take you in. He's been waiting for you to come. You just have to say the word. You just have to turn your heart toward him.
wherever you are today, Jesus is waiting. Let's pray together. Father God, what a great day it is to be in your house and to open your word. Father, just as the song that we often sing says, we are prone to wander. But we rejoice today that you are a God that just keeps reeling us back in. Father, the lesson that we read about Lot, it has so many things that we hope we would never be or never do, but the reality is we're all susceptible to drifting away from you, to getting on our own path, and to stepping away from that following relationship and trying to lead things ourselves. Lord, help us. Draw us close. Help us to be the men and the women that you've called us to be. Help us to be set apart. Help us to be the witnesses that this world needs so, so desperately. Oh, Lord, we love you today. And we pray in Jesus' name.